Hello everybody! I am so excited to be sharing with you today more of the unveiling of Jesus Christ in this third Revelation Bible study. I'm ready to hear it. <laughs> Alright, well in that case, let's get started. I'm Brad. And I'm Scott. And this is not about us. Okay, everyone, I, I truly am excited to be sharing this study with you today. Ready to go! <laughs> I really do, really, really do want to thank you so much for listening. And I really do hope that this study is a continuous blessing to you as we get deeper and deeper into the Bible mystery and Bible adventure that is Revelation. That's right. But before we get started, as always, I want to be in the spirit, but... I want to fall back into the shadows and let he, whose testimony this truly is all about, to take center stage. So Scott, would you lead us in an opening prayer, an invitation, and bring the Spirit here with us now in all his glory and all of his awesomeness? Absolutely. Thank you, Yahweh. Thank you, Yahweh. We just magnify you, praise you, lift you up, and worship you. Be in here tonight. You said you inhabit your praise, so we just praise you. Everywhere and listening to this right now in your own heart, out loud if you're able, just praise him. Let him inhabit your space right now. Praise you, Yahweh. We just thank you, magnify you, however you want to say it, whatever language you want to say it in, whatever verbiage you want to use, just praise God right now. He deserves it. We just praise you, Yahweh. Praise you, Yahweh. Thank you so much. And as Brad said, we want to slip back into the shadows. We live in a dark time. We live in a shadowy world. Right now, God, we recognize that to be true, but you are the light. You are the sun. You are our source. May any good that comes out of this be a reflection of you and you alone. We live in the shadows. You are the light. Be our light, Yahweh, today. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. That, That got me pumped. Let's go. All right, well, so far in this study, we've been with John as he has given us insight through his introduction that his testimony of Revelation is perfect in its completeness. He showed us all the steps that happened to get the Revelation to him, and he's explained that this Revelation is a testimony of Jesus Christ. In today's study, we get an idea of who the attended audience of Revelation is, the seven churches, but hint, it's also for all of us. Are you ready? Let's, Let's go. get started. That's right. So Revelation 1-4. John, to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Real quick, I'll just throw in the note. That's the King James Version. However, I might use other versions as I go along here um, if I think they have deeper meaning or if I just think they're more interesting or they give me something that I really like. But uh, let's get started because Revelation 1-4, it has some cool things I'm really excited to unpack with you. Uh, The first thing I want to mention is the word churches used here and why I think we should use the word assemblies or maybe even congregations instead. Um, even when reading the King James Version. So let me explain that a little bit. 
The Greek used for churches here is Strong's Concordance, 1577. And I'll apologize in advance if I pronounce, pronounce these, any of these incorrectly. I can't even pronounce English, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's a Greek word, eklesi, and it means a calling out. It also stresses a group of people called out for a special purpose. Now, I want to suggest that the word churches translated in the King James Version is not appropriate. I would argue that assemblies is the best translation to use here. I believe that the word used here was derived from the Hebrew root kihila. Its first was used when Israel was assembled at the mountain to hear the terms of the covenant pronounced by the Almighty. Now, they were called out to be his people. So, that makes sense. I can't think of any other purpose more special than that to be set aside and called out to be God's people. But the word church is from the Old English kirki and was derived from the Greek kikolos, which literally has a meaning of circle, which that was adapted as circus because a circus was performed in a circle. I didn't know that. Yeah, so... That's where circus comes from. Circus, from circle. Huh. Because originally it was performed in a circle. Yeah. And you kind of see that nowadays. Right, that makes sense. So the word assembly could appropriately be used, but the word church, I say, should be sternly avoided. I believe assemblies should be used to disconnect ourselves mentally and emotionally from the modern Nicolaitans or the Laodicean church that has truly become a circus. Yeah, that's true. We will we'll get into that a little more later. I'm in agreement with you on this. I uh, but I understand it's so hard when talking to a modern day church and uh, the body of Christ to separate some of these words that have just become so ingrained in the the vernacular and the culture. It's just like I mentioned in another podcast, uh, Jesus Christ. How Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. And it just means enlightened one, and I don't like to use it because Jesus is the Messiah. That's singular. He's the only one. Christos is anyone who's enlightened. Exactly. And it's not inaccurate. He is an enlightened one, but it doesn't specify his unique nature. I prefer Messiah. I will still use Jesus Christ because I understand that's what people are going to understand. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think assemblies is the more accurate term and it was always intended to be used. It was always in the Hebrew of both Old and New Testaments that we found. It's, all, it's the Hebrew. And it always won, I always wondered why, why church was used in the New Testament when they didn't translate it that way in the Old Testament. They always translated this word assembly as assemblies in the Old Testament. Why did they change to the word church in the New Testament when they claimed they were drawing from exactly the same word in both situations? Yeah, I, I don't know the reason behind that. That might be something to further study. But I do see that there is a, a connection where they are trying to say the Hebrew root word is this Greek word, uh, kikolos, which is the one that means circle. And I, ju I just don't buy it. But you're absolutely right. In the modern times, we say churches, mm -hmm. you know, so... I mean, there's absolutely nothing wrong with saying that at all. I just have a preference, like you would rather say Messiah, you know, rather than 
Christos, I'd rather say assemblies here just because that's my preference. And I'm with you. I would rather say it on my own, but when you're around a certain group of people who don't understand what you're talking about, it's, I find it gets very difficult. So I'm glad you're explaining this now. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to do that right away because, um, I'm going to mention assembly or assemblies quite a bit here. So I wanted to get that out of the way right, right at the beginning here. But once again, I'm not coming down harshly on anybody. If church, if that word is so important to you, oh, use it. You know, absolutely. That's right. If if anyone's interested in this, assemblies versus church, um, a lot of my information that I got here, um, this was from Michael Rood's The Chronological Gospels. Uh, we mentioned Michael Rood a few times. He has, I'd say, inspired both of us um, at different definitely. points. Um, he's done He's done much research to try to track down uh, exactly when Jesus did certain things. Chronological Gospels, it's a lifetime's work. I, I would highly recommend that you take a look at it, give it a consideration. I can, I wholeheartedly agree. So that being said, from here on out, even though I am using the King James Version, I might say assembly, I might say assemblies, and I might say church because I might just be reading and not, you know, not right or just saying what I'm reading. My personal preference is I will say assemblies. So if you read that again, John to the seven assemblies, which are in Asia. So let's let's start with that. John to the seven assemblies. The seven assemblies are interesting to me for a couple of reasons. First, unlike today, these assemblies would have shared the letters they received with each other. They would have shared the whole revelation with each other, even though there are some embarrassing things brought up about each of them. Well, not necessarily all of them, but there are some embarrassing things. To me, that's kind of a foreign concept, because nowadays, I feel like if any any certain denomination of the church got some divinely inspired letter, I feel like they'd keep it to themselves. They might promote, hey, we're the best because we got it. Uh-huh. And I just, I find it hard to imagine that they'd be humble enough to share if there was anything bad in it. Right. You know, so I just, I find that interesting that we're still in a very, we're still in the very early days. We're still very, we're still figuring this out. Mm-hmm. Even if that means we have to be a little more humble, even if that means we have to share some of our faults, the these churches, these seven assemblies, they're on a circular trading route. So I just imagine members of congregation, you know, just traveling from city to city and sharing whatever insights that they had. To me, that that's kind of a cool picture. You know, you travel from one to the next, share your letter, share whatever 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 letter you have, whatever uh, Christian leader, whatever he inspired you, you just go and you keep sharing it to the next uh, place on your travels. That's cool. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Well, and if you look at the map, I mean, it really is. It's pretty much just a circular uh, trading route. Now, once again, that's just another personal belief. You know, maybe there are humble people within the church denominations that, you know, would be just excited to share that. That just hasn't been my experiences with churches. Um, hasn't been my experience with generally humanity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're not wrong. Now, the next interesting thing uh, to me um, is something that we've kind of mentioned in previous podcasts, but seven. 
Seven is a perfect and complete number that represents God. Now, Revelation is loaded with sevens, as you will see as we continue this Bible study. This is the first occurrence of the number seven used in Revelation. Now, the Greek word seven is hepta, and it's Strong's Concordance 2033, and it just means the primary number seven. Now, if I've counted correctly, hepta, seven, is used 54 times in Revelation, which is more than the rest of the New Testament combined. Wow. So I wonder if there's a connection there. Revelation is the fulfilling of God's written word and promise. So to me, I see a connection that seven would be used to represent a completeness in Revelation. This is the, this is the completion of his plan. This is, uh, book is the testimony of Jesus. I mean, the fact that they used so many sevens, there's probably even more reasons and meaning than I can figure out, but I just think it just gives testament that this is the completeness, not just of Revelation, but of the whole story, the whole Bible from the very beginning. Yeah, we've mentioned before that three is a perfect number, and we've mentioned it stands for uh, divine completeness. Seven is one of the perfect numbers, and it stands for spiritual completeness. So you're right. It's, uh, this is, the Revelation is wrapping this up. It's complete. It's so, wow, I, I had no idea seven was that integral to the whole thing, but it is. It's a testament of the spiritual completeness of everything going on here. And used almost 60 times in just Revelation alone. Right. You know, so that, that took a little bit of figuring <laughs> to figure that out. But it's those kind of things that, I don't know, I, I may not be able to give you the answer of why that's important, but it's got to be important. There's got to be something to it. Definitely. You know, and someday when, when we're up there, we can just ask God, hey, God, why was there the mention of seven 54 times in Revelation? He's going to be like, this is why. And it's going to blow our mind. You know, right now we can try to figure it out. I can't necessarily figure out the, the full meaning of it, but I still wanted to share it. It's cool to me, and I do feel like there is something to that. Now, we are going to go through each of the assemblies in greater detail when we get to them in future podcasts, but I wanna, I'm going to share a little bit of history, very quick, a little bit of history of each of them right now. Now, the seven assemblies are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Boy, I hope I got those right. Um, today... I think it'd be funny if Philadelphia was the one you messed up the most. Philadelphia. <laughs> um, today, the seven churches would be in modern-day Turkey. And a little bit of research that I've done into this, uh, some of the remnants of these ancient cities and their churches remain... Others have just merged in with modern Turkish cities that kind of dot the landscape. Uh, but during the time of these letters, these churches and cities were all on that well-worn trade route. And because they are on a well-worn trade route, quite a few of them are very prosperous. They've got, they've got a lot of money, influence, and power. Now, Ephesus was an important Roman city. So it is assumed this church was strong. According to church tradition... The Virgin Mary lived out her last days here. We know that Paul spent some time here during his travels, and he actually became frustrated with the stubbornness or the hardness of heart 
of some of the Jews during his three months preaching in the synagogues. When Paul first arrived in Ephesus, he met some men who were not aware of the Holy Spirit, and Paul was able to baptize about 12 of them into the name of Jesus Christ. Nothing earth-shattering, except unless you're one of those 12, but uh, still kind of want to paint a picture of what it's like there. The reason I'm sharing a little about the history of each church is because I'm a history nerd myself at heart, and I think it is important that we try to see the events that happened through our modern eyes, but more importantly through the eyes of the culture at the time they happened. Ultimately, though, I'll say this um, in pretty much any time that I'm talking about history, it's not so important when it happened, how it happened, it's important that it did happen. In this case, it's important that the revelation was given. And now we get to study it, and we get to share it, and we get to be blessed by that. So moving on, uh, Smyrna, as in ancient times, was very wealthy. It was an immensely powerful city. It was on par with Ephesus for influence in the region. Now I find this interesting. The city was destroyed in 178 AD after a destructive earthquake, and it was rebuilt in the second century and has been inhabited continually since then. Today it has been absorbed into the city of Izmir. Now in a future study, we will discover that there was opposition to God in this city. It is mentioned that Satan has a synagogue here. Uh, next one is Pergamos, or Pergamum. It was very much invested in its worship and belief of pagan gods. And Christianity would have much opposition here. There would be a clash between pagan gods and Christianity. It's mentioned that Satan's throne is here, and Satan is dwelling here. This is one of the major cultural centers of the Greek world at the time. And Satan has a huge influence on it. That's interesting. Thyatira is interesting to me in the regards that the time of the, at the time of this letter, there is a large Christian population, and according to the letter they received, they are being tempted by a spirit of Jezebel. When I was doing research, I discovered that in modern times, there is very little evidence to suggest that Christianity was ever dominant in this place. As I study more, and we get to that letter in a later podcast, I'm going to offer some ideas about that. Sardis was a wealthy Roman city, and Sardis was a bustling city important to the growth of the church in the area. It was a thriving trade city. Today, only several ancient ruins remain of this once bustling and important trade city. Laodicea, in its letter, is basically lukewarm, and it's blind. I find the meaning of the city name interesting. It means people ruling and represents the unbelieving, materialistic church of all ages. The city has been almost destroyed by an earthquake in the 60s AD, but it was rebuilt to be a popular place for rich Romans to retire. This city has actually been ruined many times by earthquakes. In modern times, it's been completely abandoned because of it. Hmm. Last one I'm going to share with, share with you is Philadelphia. Now this one is interesting to me because in its letter, it doesn't have anything held against it. Philadelphia was almost destroyed by a massive earthquake in Southwest Asian Minor in AD 17. The tremors continued for years. Muslims tried to overrun Asia Minor in the 14th century, and Philadelphia resisted far longer than any of the other cities, and it actually became an island of safety for Christianity. There is something I find interesting in that perseverance of Philadelphia that I will share once we get there. So, real quick, 
I find this interesting just from this very quick history lesson. The two cities that are now completely uninhabited belong to two of the churches most severely rebuked, Sardis and Laodicea. The two cities that held out the longest before the Turkish conquest are the only two churches that are fully praised, Smyrna and Philadelphia. I find that interesting, and there may be a bigger connection there that I'm going to study on more, and I'll present during their podcast. But in the time, I just thought that was interesting. Oh, I couldn't agree more. That I'm, I'm, um, as you know, Brad, uh, as, as the listeners obviously don't know, uh, not knowing me, but I'm a history nut myself. Uh, I, I knew Revelation. I knew what it says, but I didn't know the history of these places. Uh, and and I'll, albeit uh, brief, what you gave here, I didn't know that. That's fascinating to me. It's it's painting a better picture of. Uh, of what's to come in in two and in Revelation two and three. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I said, you see those connections. You see the two cities that are completely uninhabited. Mm-hmm. Now are the ones that are most severely rebuked. You know, Revelation is truly this great adventure. I mean, the whole Bible is. But when you see these connections, when you see the threads coming together, and when you see these things actually happening. But then there are still people who are so blind to it. I remember when I was blind. I thank God that I'm not anymore. But I just, I, it boggles my mind. Why do we let ourselves be so blind? Every, all the evidence is right in front of us if we just look for it. I think you might have touched on it right there, if you just look for it. Right. Uh, so John to the seven assemblies, which are in Asia. And we discussed that's modern-day Turkey. Grace be unto you. Let's stop and look at that word grace real quick. The Greek word grace used here is Strong's Concordance 5485 under the Greek. The Greek is kaisi. It means graciousness of manner or act, especially the divine influence upon the heart and its reflection on life. Now, I love this. To me, I saw a connection here that I had never seen before. But this shows me how God's grace on a believer will reflect on their life now. So if you have grace in your heart, you cannot help but be thankful, and you will start to live your life in a way that reflects that. And that's so true. I mean, this is my testimony. It's, I'm sure it's your testimony, Scott. It's, it's, it's what happens. You start to love grace you start to love the better things yes you want to put away you you still do the things you don't want to do Mm -hmm. we'll never not be able to not do that but you start to you start to regret it Mm -hmm. you 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 want that grace back you ask for forgiveness you you let it go i remember someone saying one time uh when people were crying out i want justice and uh friend of mine said i don't want justice I want grace. Right. Because if I get justice, I'm dead. Exactly. I mean, I came to a really hard... Well, let me share that. In the last podcast study, I made a connection that if you see Jesus with your eye, you absorb him into your heart, mind, and soul. Now, here we see grace has influence on your heart. When I was just starting out on my relationship chase with God... 
the enemy very quickly tried to get in there and make me feel guilty about my past. I have shared my encounter with Jesus in the introduction, but I have just made this connection that grace frees me of that guilt. Do not get me wrong. I still have that regret that I have done things that have hurt people and things that have hurt God. But I now know that I have the grace of God in my heart. So when the enemy tries to make me feel guilty, when he tries to attack my heart, I don't have to submit to him. Yes, we should confess our sins. And yes, we should repent of those sins. But they're no longer being held against us, thanks to Jesus making the sacrifice on the cross. He said, it is finished. In other words, if the wages of sin are death, then Jesus just paid those wages for us. It is finished, or the debt is paid. So I guess what I'm saying is, do not let that guilt, do not let that doubt affect the grace you have in your heart. Let that grace shine. Yes. Reflect it to the world. Let it be a reflection on your life. Someone else um, taught me one time that you're exactly right. The fact that you are a sinner and the fact that you have committed horrible deeds in your life and the fact that you have done things that you should be ashamed of and you are guilty of is correct. And we should understand that and we should have the weight of that uh, on top of us and, and be devastated by that. But where Satan is a deceiver. Satan is not a creator. Satan can only take what exists and manipulate it to his own will. He will end there. He will bring that to your recall. He will bring that to your mind and he will end there. He will end with, you deserve death. Look at what you did, you horrible person. You should be ashamed of yourself. You are worthy of death and he will leave you in that place. God because of his grace, says, yes, you are worthy of death. I loved you so much. I brought you out of that. Where we should understand the weight of our sin is in letting it lead us to the fact that Jesus loves us so much that it's been taken away, and we should just love him so much more for taking away something that was so horrible. And that was me. Those early days when I was chasing... I, I felt it. I was a wreck. I could not, I, that doubt started creeping in. I felt the guilt, but then the doubt started coming in. The enemy was attacking my heart. Mm-hmm. He knew I wasn't there yet. I wasn't strong enough. I hadn't come to these conclusions yet. And so he didn't want to lose his grip on me. I remember seeing this uh, early on. And I got to a point where I was not falling back into the depression, but I was definitely, definitely starting to wonder if I could be loved enough that these things would not be held against me. And I remember the day that I discovered I was a huge hypocrite because even though I said I was saved and even though I said I was God's child, I was still sinning. I was still doing some of the same things I was doing before I had changed. And when that realization hit me, the enemy, Satan, he, he left me right there crying in a pit of guilt I deserved that death. And I don't know why, other than he loves me, but that's when I was at my lowest. That's when Jesus stepped in. And just like you said, the devil left me there, 
Satan left me here. But Jesus said, no, no, I want you. And I had that encounter. And I thank God that I did. I can't imagine what my life would have been like if I had been left where I was. Yes, we need to feel that weight. We need to feel the weight of our sin. If we don't, then there's no appreciation for the sacrifice. But don't let the enemy use it against you. He has no power over you unless you give him that power. So when that doubt comes into your mind, when that guilt comes into your mind, hit your knees, talk to your father, give it to him, and let him remind you of where he wants to take you, not where the enemy wants to leave you. Amen. That got a little preachy. <laughs> but it was important. Sometimes I think, uh, I think we, we need a good mix of the truth that we deserve death and the weight, and we need to feel the weight of our sins, but we also need to remember that the reason we need to do that is because ultimately because of God's love for us and his desire for us to be with him, perfected and be with him. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and move on here. John to the seven assemblies which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. I want to stop there for a moment. Here we see three things mentioned. As we've talked multiple times now, that shows a completeness, a divine completeness. Jesus is, was, and coming. He is past, present, and future. This description shows an eternal existence. God has no start and no end. So when you say he is the past, Scott's mentioned it probably better than I can right now, but that starting point stretches off into eternity on the one side, and the future continues to eternity on the other side. How do you find that starting point? You can't. He always was. So he was, he is, something that, you know, we don't necessarily always think of, but he is now. He is with us at all times. We start a lot of our podcasts off by saying we're inviting him in. Well, he's always there. What we're doing is we're just wanting to invite him in as the honored guest. And I wish I could live my life that I remember that he's always with me because then I would always want him to be the honored guest. Yeah. God has no start. He has no end. He always was and will always be. This is just interesting to me to consider that God dwells in three realms, present, past, and future. He, he exists in so many different realms, but my mind is trying to just focus on that for a moment. And even that's hard for me as a linear creature with a linear mind to comprehend. God is in every moment of, every, of all time. So it's, we've discussed it before, but it still boggles my mind. To think that right now, at this very moment, God is here with me. He was with us when we started this podcast, and he's there right now with us starting this podcast. He is at the cross right now experiencing that. He is at Revelation. He's at the Lord's Day right now. It's just every moment of all time. Yeah, um, one of the ways, and this might be a bad example, 
but one of the ways I think about it is he is the author. Um, imagine him holding the book in his hand and throughout, imagine you holding a book in your hand. You exist simultaneously throughout the entirety of that book. And as you flip through and you read the book, the characters in that book are following along linearly. They are limited to the page you're on. They're following along. You exist on every page at the same time. Uh, you're holding that book in your hands. The beginning and the ending are in your hands. The entirety of the middle, they're all there at one time for you. I don't know if that helps, but that's one of the ways I, I think about it. Yeah, no, it's awesome. It, I sometimes do this to myself where I let my mind get too big. I let, I let my thoughts get too crazy. It's like when you watch a movie and they'll they'll start on maybe a person and then the camera will just keep going back and back and back and back and now you're in the upper earth atmosphere. Now you're seeing the earth. Now you're seeing the galaxy. Now you're, in, you're seeing the universe. You know, just and then it, it does it all within a split second. Sometimes my mind wants to do that. It just wants to get bigger and bigger and bigger and then I have to go, "Brad, stop. Come back. Come back to the things that you can understand." Because some I call them God thoughts. They're they're not for me. Mm-hmm. You know, all that's important is I'm I'm obeying the will of God here and now, and that's what I'm hope. That's that's my ultimate hope is that that's what I'm doing. Now, let's see what's next here. We've got John to the seven assemblies, which are in Asia. Grace be unto you, and peace from Him, which is and which was, and which is to come. And from the seven spirits, seven spirits which are before his throne. Again with seven. Yeah. Yeah, this one, okay, so to be fair, there are many interpretations of the seven spirits. Um, I'm going to go a little deeper into some of them next time, but the one that I'm going to start out with is, once again, this is a preference. This is me letting scripture interpret scripture and and trying to find um, a connection but this is my preference for what this believes please if you have some ideas uh, we got the comment section now please share those with me Um, I would love to hear what other people uh, have what other people think what God's laid on their heart to what they understand because what God's laid on their heart about this But the seven spirits could represent many different things, but one popular idea is that the seven spirits are referenced in Isaiah 11, 2, and 3 as a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit, answering also to the seven spirits which are before his throne. Isaiah 11, 2 through 3. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. This is one of the prophecies of the Messiah. So 1,500 years before Revelation is written, a clear picture of the Messiah can be seen here. If seven is a complete number and and representative of God, 
then if anyone represented these seven spirits, that would give a clear indication that they have to be the Messiah. So one, you have the spirit of the Lord. Two, the spirit of wisdom. Three, the spirit of understanding. Four, the spirit of counsel. Five, the spirit of might. Six, the spirit of knowledge. Seven, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Something that uh, that I often often pray for um, is I pray that our Jewish brothers, sisters, uh, that they will see the evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. That they'll truly see it and be willing to at least investigate the idea of it. In Isaiah, in, in Daniel, in, in so many of the prophets, they point to Jesus. Jesus had all of these things. He had the spirit of the Lord. He had the spirit of wisdom. He had the spirit of understanding. He had the spirit of counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord. He had it all. And so it's often that I pray. I wish the Jewish people would see that ev- evidence, know that the Messiah came already, and he's going to come back again. I'm wholeheartedly in agreement with that. It's, um, it's something, like you said, with everybody, uh, not just the Jewish people, but sometimes you, you just go, why can't you see? It's right there in front of you. Uh, I do it with... In so many ways, but at the same time, as you said before, you used to be in that place where you were blind. We both understand that place where you don't see because you don't want to see. And it does require a chase, not just the evidence to be handed to you, but it requires the desire to want to see it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I uh, I look back now and... I was so, so blind. I, I, I had a love of sinning. I did. And I always believed in God's existence. I always did. But I would manipulate what God thought mm-hmm. to, you know, be in better graces with him, if for lack of a better term. But I wanted to sin. That's truth. Well, God doesn't want me to. So I have to create a version in my head that that will be okay and will have mercy on me no matter what I do. And this is a trap that I'm seeing more and more. The more I'm chasing, the more I'm understanding, the more that I surround myself with right Christian thinkers, I'm seeing this and and it's breaking my heart. But at the same time, what did I do? How did I get out of that? This is a question that I've asked myself over and over again because if I can figure that out, then maybe I can help other people. And all I can come to the conclusion is I saw examples of people in my life that I wanted to be like. I've mentioned Greg Gall. I've mentioned Scott. My new father-in-law, Kurt. I have seen these people. I want to be like them because they're showing me something better than my version of what I created in my head. You know, I'm going to jump in right there and say that um, uh, we're supposed to be sheep following the shepherd. And it was explained to me a long time ago that lambs do not follow the shepherd. Lambs follow the other sheep until they get old enough to realize that the sheep are following the shepherd. We're always intended to be that witness for other people to Jesus, but we're never intended to be the final witness 
it's intended that you're exactly right. We be someone that we present Jesus to people so that they look at us and go, I want what you've got. But when they get mature enough, they eventually get to the point where they're not looking at us, they're looking directly at Jesus himself Yeah, and trying to be that. So I guess that being said, man, we've got to, We've got to really try to show that grace then. Mm-hmm. How many lost souls could we save if they just saw that grace in us and wanted it for themselves as well? I say that uh, I want to know what I did, you know, so I can figure that out. But the truth is, I didn't do much. God wanted me. I just got to see a glimpse of him in a few special people. And that was the catalyst that wanted me to to chase after that. So let's, if we can, let's try to do that. Let's show Jesus to others. Now, this verse ends with, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. When I was doing my timing for this study, I want to talk about that throne, but I think I'm going to leave that uh, for next time because I want to spend a fair amount of time on it um, so hopefully that's called a tease yeah. and I'm going to punish you for that one. <laughs> now I want to know about this throne. Well, I guess that's working because my hope was that it would entice you to the next study <laughs> and we'll dive deeper into revelation one five. Um, and which has an awesome reminder of Jesus and his sacrifice for us. So until next time, This has been Brad. And this has been Scott. And this has been Not About Us.